asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. In recent weeks, we've really focused on some ways that listeners can boost their income. Uh, so whether that's through starting your own side business and growing your network like Hala talked about, or when we talked with local realtor Alan about diving into investing in real estate, well, what better way to test the waters? While you are away, your home could also earn extra income. That's right. Your empty space could be an Airbnb while you're traveling, because that's all you need to become an Airbnb host. It's a lot easier than you think, and you don't need to Airbnb your entire house. You could just host your extra spare room. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Upswell Marketing would like to remind you that when customers choose your small business, they're really choosing you. So focus on super serving your existing customers and let Upswell handle the pipeline generation of new leads and customers. Upswell specializes in developing customized direct response campaigns and is now offering a no obligation free assessment of your current marketing strategies. Not to mention new customers also receive 15% off their first order when they mention that they heard about Upswell on this podcast. For more information, visit upswellmarketing.com. That's upswellmarketing.com. Welcome to How to Money. I'm Joel. And I am Matt. And today we're discussing the good enough job with Simone Stolzoff. So I'm going to start today's episode a little differently. Uh, let's start out with a quote. Work will always be work. Some people work doing what they love. Other people work so that they can do what they love when they're not working. Neither is more noble. Uh, this is a quote from Simone Stolzoff's new book, the Good Enough Job that is set to publish here in a couple weeks. Uh, and it's actually made by Simone's favorite writer who who happens to be a poet. And after going through this book, I don't think anything else we could say could actually encapsulate Simone's book any better. But we are going to discuss a number of themes from the book, how to basically diversify your identity. We're going to talk about the similarities between work and religion, or maybe the dissimilarities, <laughs> uh, the false promise of chasing after status, all of this we're going to discuss today and more. Simone Stolzoff, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here, guys. We're glad to have you. And, and so you, some of your closest friends call you Simo. So we assume just based on our five minute <laughs> chat beforehand, we can, we're allowed to call we, you that. Is that correct? Are we switching to Simo? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's kind of like my cocktail party line, you know, okay. it's like Simo, it's like Nemo with an S, you know. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So we'll probably refer to you that way uh, through a lot of this episode. But Simo, we're excited to chat with you. And the first question we ask every guest who comes on the show is what is their craft beer equivalent? And what we mean by that is while you're saving and investing diligently for the future, what is it that you proactively spend money on that some people might think is a little weird or you're just thrilled to spend money in a certain way while you're still handling money well? Yeah, so my craft beer equivalent isn't the most expensive purchase. It might pile up if you do it as frequently as I do, but I am a chocolate chip cookie fiend. I actually oh. ate a chocolate chip cookie every single day for four years of college. <laughs> 
it's like become a little it. bit of like uh it's like my brand now you know like my friends like know me as like the cookie guy but i still love him you know and i like i'm not much of like a chocolate chip cookie snob you know i'm a kind of equal opportunist from the mm-hmm. famous amos to the artisanal like eight dollar <laughs> cookie that i bought the other day are you baking your own ever sometimes yeah i don't know i feel like cookies are kind of like beatles songs like even the not great ones are still like pretty good (laughs) i obviously feel that way if you're mentioning famous amos in the same (laughs) sentence as like an eight i mean come on who can who's actually putting those things down but i guess you do not discriminate one do you ever go off brand like the the fake chips ahoy or something like that yeah i'll do it i don't know i'm just like easily pleased um (laughs) it's maybe not best for like my cultural highbrowness but i like enjoy cookies in all of their forms no i I love it okay one last question about the cookies do you have a favorite for lack of better words adjunct like what's something that you like in chocolate chip cookies that may not necessarily be traditional and if you say raisins this interview's over now (laughs) yeah Uh, I'm a purist. I think I my like hotter take uh, literally is that I like underbaked cookies. I like cookies okay. that still feel like a little gooey in the middle and like the closer that you can get to the cookie dough spectrum without giving yourself salmonella, the better in my mind. <laughs> no, I like that respect. Yeah, the ability to fold a cookie in half is better uh, <laughs> yeah. than the ability to now break it. Now you're getting yeah. to like my Italian roots as well. They, yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love it. Uh, all right, <laughs> Simone, let's dive into your book. Um, like you, so you say that you're a recovering workist uh, in the intro. It kind of, it almost feels like a an AA introduction. <laughs> introduction, honestly. Uh, but talk to us about maybe when it dawned on you that you were overvaluing the role of work in your own life. Like, what is it that caused you to to reevaluate that? Yeah. So you know, I think we're all about the same age, kind of smack in the middle of the millennial generation. And I think I was raised on certain scripts. You know, I. I grew up with lots of opportunity, which I'm grateful for, and also this mentality of, you know, I could sort of do whatever I wanted, and it was just a matter of figuring out what particular career path or what particular job was the best reflection of my unique passion and personality. And I spent my 20s really playing Goldilocks with different jobs. I worked in tech for a few years, and I worked in food for a few years, and I worked in journalism for a few years, and it really came to a head at a moment when I was choosing between these two particular jobs. Um, one was to be a staff writer at a digital magazine, and the other was to be a designer at this global design agency. And on one hand, it's like, oh, agony is me, you know, like the plight of deciding <laughs> between two attractive job offers. <laughs> but, you know, maybe you guys or some of your listeners have been in a similar crossroads before. You know, for me, it really didn't feel like I was choosing between two jobs as much as I was choosing between two versions of me. And this sort of like career indecision moment, I was probably 28 or 29, really threw me for an existential loop. And I was wondering sort of how did my identity become so entwined with what I did for work, what I did to make money. Um, And that was sort of the first kernel that led to what became the research project that eventually became the book. Nice. Well, and yeah, I think probably, well, I don't know, maybe some people have not had that and they're just nose to the grindstone and they haven't had that moment of reflection. Hopefully this discussion 
like uh, that we're going to have today pushes people to have a little bit of that, that at least start to initiate the thought process. Am I putting too much effort or uh, identity into my work? But can you give us a, a brief history lesson about how we got to the point where careers became so central to our identity, to our existence? It, it seems like it didn't used to be that way. And now careers are kind of all defining in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, there's many different possible ways to answer this question. And and maybe if your last name is Miller, you probably <laughs> can beg to differ that, you know, identity and careers have been tied together for a long time. But I think mm-hmm. there is something that is uniquely American about this and also something that is unique to the last sort of 50 years or so. And so I think there are kind of economic arguments, there's political arguments, there are social arguments, cultural arguments, the historical one is just the fact that the Protestant work ethic and capitalism were really the two strands that entwined to form our country's DNA. From the beginning, being American was synonymous with your ability to, you know, be a productive member of society or to be able to to work hard. There's also kind of economic arguments. I think this really differs depending on what side of the income spectrum you're looking at on the sort of lower earning side. Wages have been stagnant for the last 40 or 50 years, which means that people have had to work more just to earn the the same money to buy the same loaf of bread has driven a lot of people to to work long hours. On the other side, there's the kind of tax structure of our country and the way that employment and and healthcare are often tied together that Mm -hmm. make the consequences of losing work so dire and also the ability to consolidate wealth with the more hours that you work, um, greater greater abilities to do so. The, The argument I really focus on and the book is the sort of subjective or the the cultural value that Americans place on their jobs. You know, we live in a country that treats CEOs like celebrities and we plaster always do what you love on the walls of our co-working space. We parade around our job titles and, and small talk conversation and on our social media profiles. And there is really this sense that you are what you do. Um, and I think that is unique in to a certain extent to um this 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 age that we're in right now where where work is is very much in vogue or maybe in the last three three or so years with the pandemic hotly contested about its role in our lives hmm. sure yeah and, and you say it's becoming something that is turning out to be more global like it's essentially become an american export that other countries are now starting to follow in our in our footsteps sort of like levi's it's like not only do you get the jeans but you also get our ridiculous work ethic but um, yeah i mean i think the way that i frame it is like i think workism which is a term that was originally coined by the journalist derek thompson in the atlantic um, it's the idea of like treating work akin to a religious identity, you know, yeah, not well, something that you look to as just a paycheck, but also for totally. a community, a sense of self-worth, a sense of purpose in your life. I think it's primarily a phenomenon um, that is most prevalent among people that uh, have a certain level of privilege, you know, college educated Americans. But that doesn't mean that it exists. It doesn't exist in other countries. It doesn't exist in other sort of class strata. It just is particularly pronounced for people that have truthfully the privilege to be able to choose what they want to do. 
Totally. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you kind of just touched on something I was going to follow up there with, which was religion. Because you see that one of the problems is that more folks are trying to get the meaning out of their job that they used to find in religion. And so does that is a solution? Should we just go to synagogue? Should we just go to church more? Does that solve all of our problems? What is the, I guess, the problem or the difficulty in finding or putting our faith within our jobs, within our careers? Yeah, I mean, the data on the religiosity of Americans is is pretty interesting. You know, if you look back to the height of religiosity in, in the U.S. and sort of the, the 1950s, it's something like six or seven percent of Americans weren't religious and everyone else had a pretty strong association with an organized religion. And there's been this precipitous decline in the past 40 years where today nearly one in three, almost, in the latest data. Um, Americans don't have a particular religious affiliation, whether they're agnostic or atheist or just don't believe in anything in particular. And so, you know, when you think about the role that religion plays in people's lives, it is obviously something to believe in, a, a potential path to transcendence, but it's also a primary community. It's a primary source of your identity. And so with mm. the decline of these organized religions, the need for belonging and for purpose still remains. And the argument that I make in the book is that work for many people has has taken on that role. But the problem yeah. is that that's not necessarily a burden our jobs are designed to bear. You know, this is particularly visible in the past few years with the pandemic, you know, some people, whether it was due to layoffs or furloughs, lost their jobs, you know, and if your work is your primary source of identity and meaning and you lose mm. it, what's left? Well, and even for folks who didn't lose their job, maybe they started working from home and that connection to the culture and to the community of work was severed. And so that kind of changed their relationship, how they interacted with their work as well. So it was seen more as like a, I do this for a paycheck uh, when I can. And it, it lost some of its all encompassing nature. You think that's true too? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think regardless of what type of work you had, it changed in some way in the past three years. And, you know, I started reporting this book before the pandemic. I definitely did not anticipate a global pandemic helping everyone sort of reconsider their relationship <laughs> to their jobs. But it was this this huge wake up call, um, I think, for everyone. You know, their their job wasn't exactly what it used to be. And I think people who were maybe over-indexed and in looking to work as a source of identity and meaning in their life were, were left for a rude awakening, you know? And the main sort of argument that I make in the book when it gets into a little bit more of an editorial section is about what you said, about the value of diversifying your identity and sources of meaning beyond just what you do for work. You know, yeah. this isn't just to protect in the case that you get laid off, but I think one of the, the risks of a work existence is that we can neglect other parts of who we are. And one other thing I want to follow up, I mentioned how there is a work from home class. I feel like the, the pandemic kind of, it created a dichotomy, right? And we saw other people incredibly overworked and their relationship with their job changed in a different way. If you worked at a grocery store, my dad, who was stocking shelves in a grocery store at the you know ripe old age of 68, like that was a different thing, right? Than what a lot of other people experienced, a laptop class, the work from anywhere class. And so it really was kind of a tale of two Americans in how they relate to work. And everyone was questioning their relationship to work, but for different reasons, I think. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I love harping on that term essential worker that was thrown around so often during the pandemic. It's like we saw that many of these workers were essential. My partner is a elementary school teacher, you know, and maybe similar to your father, her workload and the risk that she had to expose herself to increased astronomically over the course mm -hmm. of the pandemic. And yet we still haven't necessarily given these workers that we deem essential the protections and the pay and the benefit to ensure that they can keep doing their job safely for us all. So you mentioned diversifying your identity. Can you share some of the benefits of diversifying your identity, right? So when it comes to investing your money, you want to make sure that you don't have all of your eggs in one basket. And essentially <laughs> what you're saying here is that we are putting all of our eggs into this basket of career or job title or whatever it is that we find most attractive about our jobs. What are some of the, the benefits that you found when we take a step back and when we look to some other outlets, some other ways that we are able to find our identity? Totally. Yeah. You know, much as an investor benefits from diversifying the stocks in their portfolio, I think we too really benefit from diversifying the sources of identity and meaning in our lives. And there's some research to, to back this up. You know, there's studies about what researchers call developing greater self-complexity or having different self aspects, which essentially means just investing in different parts of ourselves. You know, we're not just workers, we're also siblings and neighbors and citizens and friends and parents. And, you know, these identities, they need investment. You know, they, hmm. one of the main reasons or arguments for doing so is that in the case of, it doesn't even have to be a layoff, but any sort of bad news in the work realm, when we have a more diversified identity portfolio, it's less likely to spill over into other aspects of our lives. We're more resilient if we have yes, greater self-complexity. Yeah. Um, there's also a, a semblance, not just in sort of the, the bear case of something tragic or bad happening, but in just the value of being able to give our time and attention into other parts of who we are. It's important to keep in mind that identities are sort of like plants, you know, like they need time and intention in order to to grow. And I think part of the, the risk of living in a life that's so centered around work is that work doesn't just take our best time and often also takes our, our best energy as well. And so yeah. one of the, the arguments I make in the book is that in order to diversify your identity beyond what you do for work, you have to do things other than work, which may <laughs> seem a little obvious, but, you know, for me, at least I can definitely relate to the experience of, you know, you go to work, you come home, you're exhausted. All you have the energy to do is sort of turn off your brain and turn on Netflix. And while that can, you know, temporarily be a nice way to recharge or, you know, to get lost in another world, if you really want to have other sources of meaning in your life, you need to be actively doing things in, yep. in the community, doing things with others, investing in your relationships. Um, and so that's that's what I advocate for. Yes, it's about just being a well-rounded individual. And you know, as we were, you were talking about religion a second ago, it made me think through how getting laid off from a job, that's not a I mean, it's, it's not something that anybody wants to go through, but it's not like it's the equivalent of having your faith 
taken from you. And so I, I see that as being another problem with viewing your job and, you know, almost to the to the same extent that you view religion is that faith is it's such a personal and internal thing. And the ability for somebody outside of you to take that away kind of goes counter to, I think, how yeah. a lot of individuals view their faith, how they view their spirituality. And so, yeah, for, for you to show up one day and all of a sudden it's just like, hey, this thing that you've depended on as much as someone would typically depend on their faith as, oh, it's no longer there. That could be incredibly devastating. We have and, a more tenuous connection to our work than we think. And some people who, mm, if you put yeah. your hope and dreams and faith and future expectations all inside of this one vehicle, which is your career, so, at some point, so problematic. there's a really good chance that someone can take that away from you. It's like a Jenga tower and it's like, you're down to just <laughs> right. like a singular block at the bottom. Yeah. <laughs> totally. if, you, if you were to pull that one thing, it's like everything else just completely falls apart. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you guys know the, the writer David Foster Wallace. He has this very yeah. iconic speech. This is water. And one of the points that he makes is that there's no such thing as not worshiping. Um, We all worship something either consciously or unconsciously. And whatever you end up worshiping will probably eat you alive. You know, worship beauty and you'll feel like you're never beautiful enough or worship money and you'll feel feel like you you never have enough of it and i think the same is true with work you know it's what gets us into these systems where people are you know chasing carrots their entire lives and never fully feeling full you know it's like you can chase all the next rung on the career ladder the next title or status or salary band but unlike these sort of material things of, of the working world, religion is, is less easily falsifiable, you know, and yeah. I don't think we necessarily have to all find whatever, you know, God out there exists for us. That's definitely one means of doing so. But by having other sources of meaning, we're able to just bounce back if, say, your manager says something um, disparaging over the course of the workday, if you can show up as a as a good father that night, or show up as a good third baseman for your recreational softball team, or <laughs> show up as you know a very present friend to a buddy who is going through something, all of those identities can help soften the inevitable bumps we we face in, along the road of work. Yeah, and the places where work falls short. I'm still gunning for that senior podcast host title that Matt has not bestowed on me yet, but I don't know. May, may, maybe soon. Two more years. Two more years. <laughs> it's always two more years. Two more years. I know. You always keep holding that like a carrot in front of me that I can never attain. But we've got more questions we want to get to with you, Simo. We specifically want to talk about the role that passion or fulfillment plays in work. Like, do we need to divorce it completely? Uh, and, and so we'll get to questions on that and maybe some practical suggestions for how to find, uh, to start to remove our identity from mostly being centered around our work. We'll get to some of those those questions at Convo right after this. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. They are committed to high ethical standards and even had to pass a rigorous exam before they could become a CFP professional. They offer financial planning and services that take a more comprehensive view of your financial and personal circumstances and are customized for your needs. Certified financial planner professionals can offer advice on a wide range of issues like reviewing your investment portfolio's allocation, handling an inheritance, rolling over a company retirement plan, building education savings, and so much more. 
That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. And now a word from the show's sponsors at Betterment. Do you want your money to dream big? Do you want your money to be a total self-starter? Are you annoyed that your money doesn't work hard enough? Don't worry. Betterment is here to help. Betterment is the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Their automated technology is built to help maximize returns, meaning when you invest with Betterment, your money can auto-adjust as you get closer to your goal. Rebalance if your portfolio gets too far out of line and your dividends are automatically reinvested. That can increase the potential for compound returns. In other words, your money is breaking a sweat while you can be breaking bread. You'll never picture your money the same way again. Betterment, the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. Spring cleaning is kind of a, an annual rite of passage. We've all got to do it, minimize the junk that we have in our house. Emily and I, we just cleaned our closets out. It took hours, but it was so worth it. Now we've only got stuff in there that we love, and it's easier to find everything too. And so, you know, while cleaning your closets is helpful, well, there's something else you can do for your family this spring. Shopping for life insurance with Policy Genius, for example, is a really important part of your financial planning for the year. That's right. Yeah. And here is the thing that's important to remember, because you might be thinking you don't need to check out Policy Genius because you've got a policy through work. But even if you have a life insurance policy through your job, it may not offer you enough protection for your family's needs and it may not follow you if you leave your job. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Policy Genius works for you, not the insurance companies, and that means they don't have an incentive to recommend one insurer over another, so you can trust their guidance. Save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. All right, we are back from the break talking to Simo Stolzoff about the good enough job. And Simo, talk to us about meaning, talk to us about purpose and work, because it certainly seems like that there is this this push to find like ultimate fulfillment <laughs> in your career. But how do you think we should think about that role, specifically the role that passion plays in our in our nine to five? Like is the dream job? Is it just a pipe dream at this point? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, and I think when you like look at the cover of the book or even read the title, you know, the subtitle is Reclaiming Life from Work, you might assume that my argument is some is like anti work, you know, and this idea of like anti work is become a bit of a, a meme or a trend recently. There's a huge subreddit about anti-work and it's there's a lot of cultural cachet in being able to be like anti-capitalist or against the man. And yet I, I don't think that going full on to that end of the spectrum is necessarily helpful or mm. will be a recipe for fulfillment. When it comes to passion, you know, I think I have certainly derived a lot of meaning and purpose and passion from my work myself. But I think, you know, I, I rely a lot on this chapter uh, of the research of this woman at, at Michigan State named Erin Check, um, who wrote this book called The Trouble with Passion. And basically her argument is that not all of us have the same on-ramps to be able to translate our, our passions into our, our means of making money. And for people 
who have fewer opportunities, it can actually exacerbate inequality when we tell everyone to follow their passion, but some people don't have as much access to passion jobs as others. And I think a lot of times, you know, passion can be uh, a stand-in for fair compensation or, or fair pay. There's this concept in the book I talk about that's called vocational awe, which is the idea that certain industries have a sort of perceived righteousness like a halo effect. I'm thinking about things like healthcare workers or like teachers or people that work in the nonprofit sector. Um, and it was a, a concept that was originally coined by this librarian, this woman named Fobazi Itar. And she observed how this sort of rhetoric around follow your passion or, you know, vocational awe, like the idea that you should be in it for something more than the money can actually cover up a lot of the malpractice and exploitation that exists within all of these different fields. You know, I have this mentor, this woman, Anne Helen Peterson, and she says, most of the time, all passion can get you is the excuse to be paid very little. Um, (laughs) And so, you know, it's a fine balance, obviously, you know, we work more than we do just about anything else in our life and, you know, how we spend those hours matter. But I think being clear headed about the fact that work is first and foremost an economic contract, it's a it's an exchange of your time and your labor for money, uh, the better. It can certainly be more than those things. But uh, I think the more sort of clear headed we can be about its fundamental purpose, the better off we'll be. Yeah, I like that. I, I, okay, you talked too about how like stagnating wages, and we've seen a little bit of that change recently. We've seen kind of, especially at the lower end of the income spectrum, we've seen higher uh, paces in wage growth, still not making up for lost, lots of decades where that wasn't happening. But um, I guess, so, so there is that element where for a lot of folks, pay hasn't kept up. And so having to work more hours just to make ends meet is a thing for sure. But I guess I want to ask you too, there's a lot of people, we, we, Matt and I talk about this all the time, we see stats where people make 200K a year and they're still living paycheck to paycheck. So often for a lot of people, it's not just that they're not getting paid enough. So do you think uh, not being a personal finance nerd <laughs> to the extent of Matt and I, like our poor savings habits and that intense reliance on that income from our day job, does that make matters worse that we are basically tied at the hip to our employer, that we don't have enough margin, where if we did lose our job or if we wanted to pursue something else, that we don't really have that ability? Totally. Yeah. I mean, I think there's sort of like two parts to the question. There's one is like the what we've observed in the pandemic where the just a a modicum of kind of social support from the government allowed a lot of people to leave jobs that weren't good enough for them. Mm. And so, you know, I think one of the the misconceptions about the great resignation was that it was just people kind of dropping out of the labor force and, and sitting on their couch all day. Whereas in actuality, the majority of people that left jobs during the, the heart of the pandemic actually just left to find better jobs. Um, so I think that's really important to consider. It's like when we feel like there is a little bit of government support or just a, a less frayed social safety net, people feel more empowered to find work that works better for them. Hmm. And then there's kind of the second half of, of your question, which is, you know, thinking about people that 
were making a lot of money that might not have very much slack in in their budget or their spending habits. And I think a lot of that comes back to sort of the the consumerism that is so prevalent in America and the pressure to to always be spending and keeping up with the Joneses and having the the nice new thing and sort of foregoing some of the long term benefits that we can get for from saving or having um, just you know more resiliency built into your budget versus the sort of short term rush of, of getting something that's shiny and new. Consumerism. Yeah. I'm not sure what you're talking about. I haven't seen that at play <laughs> in this country. So. We, we talk about that all the time here on the show. Yeah. Simo, you were discussing how it's it's like is it a it's like a chicken or egg situation where we are spending, therefore we have to earn more, or is it oh, we don't have the time to dedicate towards developing our identity outside of work because we are working so much it's this sort of doom loop that we find ourselves stuck in and i think that's definitely true when it comes to our personal finances and how that's intertwined with our careers as well one of the other myths that you tackle that that you address is that our coworkers how we should not necessarily view them as family oftentimes folks just they believe that line and i was talking to a buddy of mine and he's after getting laid off he He's, he highlighted the fact that, man, you know, this is a line that I believed. It's I'm a manager myself. We live by this line. But when the time comes and you get laid off, you quickly realize that your, your family <laughs> left. Your coworkers <laughs> are not your family. Why is that such a problem? Yeah, I think, you know, the the desire to form close bonds at work isn't misguided. And, and there have been lots of studies to back this up. People that have close friends at work tend to be more fulfilled by the job. They tend to stay at jobs longer. And so it should come as no surprise that companies and especially leaders sometimes use the rhetoric of, of family and the sort of bonds that bind us together to try and inspire employees to work for the cause or to, mm. to stay at their companies <laughs> for longer. And I think, similar to your friend, so many people have seen over the past few years how that rhetoric can be very shallow. You know, you can't fire yeah. someone from your company. And But even if it was true that your workplace could be like your family. I'm not sure that's something that we should aspire to. You know, most <laughs> of the families that I know are pretty dysfunctional in one way or <laughs> another, you know? And so in some ways the the question about like workplace as family is sort of just a semantic distinction and just about this idea of like how much of our relationship should we center in, in the workplace. Yeah. And, you know, I think the, so the argument that I make is like, it's not necessarily a problem to have friends at work. But I think if your workplace is your sole source of community, that is a narrow platform to balance on. You're prone to be blown over by a strong gust of wind, whether that is getting laid off or your quote unquote family member having to give you some tough love and in the sake of furthering the business goals, or even just the sort of negative consequences of the sort of in-groups and the cliques that can form at work. They, there's been research that has found that in more familial workplaces, workers are less likely to speak up about wrongdoing. They're less likely to be transparent. They're less likely to make decisions based on sound business 
analysis and rigor as opposed to just sort of like trusting what your buddy says. And so, you know, there are actual material consequences of relying too much on social ties as opposed to fundamentally what a professional relationship should be, which is based on your your material goals for the company. So it makes me think of the last real job I had. Fortunately, I don't have a real job now. I just podcast. <laughs> but the last the last real job I had, there was this thing where once a month they would give out $100 awards to like 10 different people in the company for going above and beyond and for doing something just of incredible dedication to to the company and to the company's efforts. And the people who got rewarded is like literally just, I mean, 100 bucks. I'm not saying 100 bucks is nothing, but it was 100 bucks. And it, it was oftentimes somebody who came in on the weekend who like left their family in the lurch to come take care of something at work. And I was like, I'm making it my personal goal to never win this award because mm. it felt like that was asking too much and it was creating an, a tie that it didn't deserve that sort of stranglehold over my life. And I, I could tell so many people prided themselves on being able to win this $100 recognition in front of their coworker sort of thing. And I had just the opposite stance. And I was like, this is absurd. And there's no way I ever want to be found up on that podium accepting the award because it will have meant that I dropped obligations and duties that matter a whole lot to me. So I guess that's where I want to ask too. How do we find, uh, create a proper attachment to work where we, where we are working hard, where we're produce, producing good work, where we are a part of the organization in a meaningful way without going above and beyond? Uh, we don't want to be lackadaisical, but we also don't want to uh, over like overexert ourselves and basically uh, inhibit the ability for those other identity forming necessities to take place. Yeah, I mean, I love the question. It reminds me of uh, Office Space, where Jennifer Aniston's wearing the vest with like flair at the restaurant <laughs> where she all works. All the pieces of flair. Yeah, yes. exactly. And it's like, you know, she's wearing what the expectation was set, but like the idea is that you shouldn't wear the minimum. You should be going above and beyond and wearing the most flair. <laughs> You know, and I think like it's amazing how easy sometimes it is to incentivize workers to stay late or to work on the weekends. There's sort of like the equivalent of like the free T-shirt that you can get, you know, like what is that $100 actually costing the company versus what is it costing you? So in the book, I, I advocate for a more transactional approach to work. And it might sound crass to treat a job as a transaction, you know, especially because we've been told that jobs are meant to be meanings and identities and vocations and callings, not mere paychecks. But I think a, a more transactional approach to work can actually benefit both employers and employees. I think it frees employers to be able to be straightforward about what the expectations for good work looks like to be clear in setting up you know this is what success would mean this is these are the numbers that we're hoping you hit this is the sort of standards that we have here as a company and it frees employees to you know talk about compensation in a fair way and not think that somehow talking about money is undermining the best interest of the company it frees employees to understand what is expected of of them and more than anything it frees employees to treat work as part of but not the entire 
entirety of their lives. And, you know, we're talking a lot about quiet quitting and workers that are sort of phoning it in. I don't actually think that is a, a recipe for fulfillment or happiness either. You know, like I, I'm sure we can all relate to the work days where you don't have enough work to do and you're sort of just twiddling your thumbs and the, the clock is moving slower than you thought was humanly possible. I think <laughs> treating work as like a necessary evil is not necessarily a recipe for fulfillment either. But I that's think why that, social media was invented, Simo. Let's be honest. <laughs> yeah, <that's>, exactly. <laughs> just to fill all the it's like a gas, you <laughs> all know, the just gaps. fills yeah. all the unoccupied space in our days. But you know, I think it's it's finding that balance of like what mm. do you want work's role to be in your life? How does that intersect with the necessities to do a good enough job for your company? and how you can invest the, the time and energy that you have in other aspects of who you are. What I like about the sort of title of the book, the, the Good Enough Job, is that it's intentionally subjective. You know, you get to decide what good enough means to you. Maybe it's a job that pays a certain amount of money, or maybe it's a job that has a certain title or is in a certain industry, or maybe it's a job that gets off at a certain hour so that you can pick up your kids from childcare. But whatever sort of your definition of good enough is I implore you to recognize when you have it because that's what will allow you to set better boundaries around when you can say the workday is done and not necessarily feel like you're always um, you know somehow falling behind if you're not getting ahead that's right yeah well like you said it's not necessarily a bad thing it's not and it also shouldn't be your sole focus. It's so hard to find that balance. But you're, you've talked about setting some of these boundaries here in your book. And we're actually going to get to some of the practical ways that we can try to help decide for ourselves what the good enough job is. We'll get to all of that right after this. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. They are committed to high ethical standards and even had to pass a rigorous exam before they could become a CFP professional. They offer financial planning and services that take a more comprehensive view of your financial and personal circumstances and are customized for your needs. Certified financial planner professionals can offer advice on a wide range of issues like reviewing your investment portfolio's allocation, handling an inheritance, rolling over a company retirement plan, building education savings, and so much more. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. If you're listening to this podcast right now and you're a small business owner, listen up. Upswell Marketing would like to remind you that when customers choose your small business, they're actually choosing you. So focus on super serving your existing customers and let Upswell handle the pipeline generation of new leads and customers. They do everything from hyper-targeting best fit prospects through campaign optimization. Upswell Marketing's unique approach includes direct mail, search engine marketing, and social media ads, and has fueled more than 10,000 small business success stories. Upswell specializes in developing customized direct response campaigns and is now offering a no-obligation free assessment of your current marketing strategies. Not to mention, new customers also receive 15% off their first order when they mention that they heard about Upswell on this podcast. For more information, visit UpswellMarketing.com. That's UpswellMarketing.com. 
I'm guessing that a lot of listeners are starting to solidify their summer travel plans. We always like to get the families together, Matt, for a week yeah, at the we beach do. every single summer. We've already got that trip to St. Simons on the calendar. Pumped for that. But sometimes those vacations get expensive. So what better way to offset some of those costs than to have your home earning some money while you're away? That's right. Why let it sit empty when it could be earning extra income? It's the financially smart thing to do. So think it through. Maybe you've got some extra space in your home, or maybe you have an entire house to host. Or maybe you're just going on vacation and your home is sitting empty. In every case, you can Airbnb it. You already have the space, so it won't be a huge adjustment. I mean, the way I see it, if you're not using your space, you have two options. You can let it just sit there empty, or you do some optimizing and make some money off it. Really, if you think about it, you already have an Airbnb. You just need to start using it. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. All right, we're back from the break. Still talking with Simo Stolzoff about doing work that's good enough. And I really love that framework. But uh, specifically, how do we get there with the day job that we've got going on, whether we're self-employed or we have you know, a, a W-2 job? Let's, let's talk, Simo, for a second about drawing better work boundaries, because I love the concept, but in practice, it seems like it could be a little more difficult. How do we make sure that we're working the way we want, not being wrung dry by our employer, and that we still get to keep our job, right? Because we still got to pay the mortgage or the rent or whatever it is. Yeah, totally. I think you know the question with boundaries is is tricky. It can it can be a, a fine line, literally. Um, and I think sometimes those boundaries are incumbent on the worker to draw, and sometimes the responsibility should actually lie on the employer. Um, my mentor that I mentioned earlier, Anne Helen Peterson, she has this great distinction between the difference between boundaries and guardrails. You can think about boundaries as sort of like the the line in the middle of the highway that keeps you from going to from one lane to another, whereas guardrails are, are structural. They're put in place by the state. They're the metal things on the side of the road that keep you from, from going over. And I think, you know, one of the problems with individually imposed boundaries is that they inevitably break. You know, you can have an intention to work less, but if there is a deadline or it's near the end of the quarter and you have a quarterly sales goal or your boss tells you to work more hours, it can be hard to raise your hand and be like, um, actually I have a boundary, you know? Um, <laughs> I mean, I definitely found this in writing the book, you know, the great irony is that I was like working on this book about the culture of overwork in America. <laughs> and in many ways I was my own worst manager. Um, and so I would, you know, feel crappy on weeks where I didn't hit my writing goal and mm. it would inevitably open up the laptop on the weekend, even though I had a quote unquote boundary that I didn't want to do that. And so I think, you know, the first point is that a lot of the onus to set these boundaries actually should rest on the company and on managers and creating cultures where it's okay for people to take time off, creating plans in place for distributing the workload so that there isn't an undue burden placed on any individual, hiring enough employees so that there's enough work, uh, enough workers to to spread out the work um, and also creating norms around like when you should be on or off the clock. But I also think that 
individuals also deserve a certain level of responsibility. The, the one stat that I always come back to is in Japan, they have the most progressive parental leave and specifically for, for fathers, parental leave policy in, in the world. Fathers are entitled to up to a year of, of paid time um, after they have a kid. And the last data that I looked at only 5% of Japanese fathers wow. took the entirety of the time that they were allotted. And so it sort of points to these two necessities. There needs to be the sort of policies in place that allow people to do things other than work or prioritize things outside of their work life. But there also needs to be the cultural will to do so. And I think that is what some of this kind of deprogramming or, or having a a sufficiency mindset when it comes to work can allow us to do. Yeah, that's and this is why we love your approach, Simo. I mean, you are finding yourself in the radical middle because I feel like it's easy just to point to one end of the spectrum or the other and be like, that, that's the devil. If Congress uh, we, we, need, we need policy to do the or, yeah. exactly, but yeah, you're saying you know there is a certain degree of responsibility that that falls with the actual company, but that doesn't mean that we're not off the hook. Mm -hmm. And I think in particular. We need to channel our efforts in the areas that I think where we can move the needle the most for us as individuals. And when it came to for you to talk about some of the different boundaries that we can draw in our lives, like you talk about, too, how there are some folks who like to have their work to be more integrated within their life. Right. And so it's not even saying that what you should do is have hard boundaries and that's going to be how you're going to be able to achieve happiness and a successful life. But it seems like you're just asking a lot of questions and you want individuals to kind of do the hard work. And it seems like that that is at the core of the problem here is that a lot of individuals, they are not doing that difficult work. They're not setting goals for themselves. They're, you know, they're chasing status. They're chasing after rankings or job titles or salaries as opposed to taking the time and thinking through what it is that they want for themselves. I mean, do you feel like that that's accurate? Yeah, totally. And, you know, I mean, the actual format of the book is I chronicle people's stories in different industries. And the one that stands out here is the story of uh, a Wall Street banker that I tell. It's perhaps like the most cliche story in the book. This guy was <laughs> a valedictorian and he went to an Ivy League college and got a job on Wall Street that paid the most and quickly rose up the ranks of the firm and was one of the youngest VPs in the firm's history. And from his perch at the top of the org chart, he realized that he was playing a game that he didn't actually want to win. Exactly. You know, and he hadn't taken the time to look up and ask, what is it that I actually want? You know, he was always just chasing what the market valued. But I think, you know, the wisdom in his story is that the the other end of the spectrum where you just think about what you want without considering what the market wants is dangerous as well. It's the kind of thing that might get you in a situation where you assume a lot of student debt to pursue a graduate degree that might not actually lead to job prospects on the other end or mm -hmm. a situation where you're an artist, but you're so preoccupied by how you're going to pay rent that you can't actually focus on the art that you hope to create. And so, you know, it, it, it might be a little simplistic, but I think it's, it's really important to hold both of those incentives in your hand at the same time and think about, okay, what is it that I value? What is it that the market values? And how can I find work that marries the two? 
Yeah. And so one of the things I loved about your book was that it wasn't some sort of self-help 10 steps to uh, a better relationship with your job. And it was more storytelling. But I guess I am also curious at the end, how, like when when we talk about having that conversation with your boss, with your direct manager, let's say you've been somewhere for years and you feel like over time there's just been this encroachment. And so I feel like the, uh, of, of your employer on your own personal time and you found it harder to set boundaries, which I think probably a lot of people could relate to that. What does it look like then to, I mean, you might start looking down the road to work somewhere else, right? Uh, That's potentially one solution. But what if you're like, I really like my job. I would just like to have a more normal relationship with it. How would you suggest starting to have that conversation with your direct supervisor to kind of set up boundaries that are going to make sense for both of you? Yeah, I think, you know, there are things that you can do within the confines of the workplace and there are things that you can do outside of the workplace. When it comes to talking with your manager, I always go back to just clarity of expectations. I think one thing that drives people to overwork is this desire to sort of perform that they're doing a good job. You know, this in the office world might mean just like putting in FaceTime at the office and staying at your desk or in the home world. It might be, you know, just sitting around on, on Slack or Microsoft Teams waiting for someone to send you a message. But what we should be valuing is the quality of the work itself. And so that's where I often start when I advise people about talking to their bosses or their managers, having a very clear conversation about, okay, what, where are we? What is the sort of like status of the quality of the work that I am producing? Where am I meeting expectations? Where am I exceeding expectations? If you want to try and get promoted or move to the next level, what is the type of work that you are expected to do? And just making some of those things clear. And so you're not just sort of putting in pennies to the proverbial work piggy bank, hoping to cash out one day, but you're actually, (laughs) you know, working clearly towards what good work looks like at your company. When it comes to your life outside of work. Focusing on the work. I like that. Yeah. yeah, Not on the other stuff. Hey, am I here enough? Am I here enough hours? I feel like that that's presenteeism. You start to feel like that's part of the work that's required, but that's not the work. Totally. And, you know, certain industries are just really set up in a way that, that make this very hard. Like I think I'm thinking of like lawyers, for example, who are asked to track their billable hours in like six minute or 15 minute increments. And I was talking to a few lawyers for the book and they were saying, you know, it is a disincentive for me to do efficient work. You know, that mm-hmm. I get no material award of for working efficiently or doing high quality of work. It's all just about the number of hours I spend on the work. And that incentive structure is just so backwards. You know, like I understand mm-hmm. that yeah. lawyers bill hourly and so there should be an expectation that they're, you know, doing a certain number of hours in order to do work for the firm but you know what we should be rewarding is the quality of the the work itself and i think that can be extended to so many other fields the thing i always advise people for outside of the office is you know i talked a little bit about doing things other than work but in practice this means sort of like having active forms of leisure you know like if you want to conceive of yourself as more than just someone who exists on this earth to produce economic value or economic returns for a corporation 
try and find realms of your life where people maybe don't even know what you do for work or don't care about <laughs> your job title, you know, and this doesn't necessarily have to be taking up knitting or a personal hobby. While I do think there is value in being able to do something just for the joy of it or just for the fun of it. Um, it can mean getting involved in, in your neighborhood or your local community. It can mean finding a community of people like a, a sports team or a book club that your value to that community is not tied to your value in the office. It's something where you can show up in a, in a different realm and start to kind of cultivate those different identities. You know, uh, just a, a recent example, I'm, I'm Jewish and there are there's like a, a dormant Jewish identity somewhere deep inside <laughs> of me. I'm not very not a very active Jew, but you know, recently it was Passover and you know, I, I sat around the table with my family and we participated in some of the the traditions of the religion. And it was through that behavior, it was through that activity of actively doing something mm -hmm. related to Judaism that I felt my identity as a Jewish person begin to grow. And so you can nice. think about that in any realm of your life, whether you're a, a craft beer aficionado, <laughs> that identity will grow if you are actively taking time to learn more about the craft beers or going out drinking with friends. Just yeah. don't let it grow too much. Stay sober out there, folks. You know? <laughs> but Absolutely. Well, Simo, this has been an awesome conversation. We really appreciate you taking the time to just talk to us about finding that balance. Where is it that folks can learn more about you and specifically where they can find your book? Yeah, the best place to go is thegoodenoughjob.com. Um, this is my first book, and so every order or pre-order really makes a big difference. And there you can find all of my socials and other information that you might need. Awesome. Well, thank you again for joining us here on the podcast, Simo. Thanks for having me. All right, Matt. Gotta love that conversation with Simone. I feel like there is like so much of what he has written about and what he talks about, we have talked about in different ways over the years. Exactly. Not with the eloquence exactly. <laughs> <laughs> or the precision. We certainly have not written a book on it. No. But I mean, it's, it's one of the reasons I mean, it's that we wanted to have him on because the message that he has, it's so important. And honestly, the more ways that you can talk about it, like the different angles that you can take to the same end goal. Mm -hmm. Well, if that helps others to, to find that balance and to find that fulfillment and happiness in life, we are all for it. For sure. Yeah. All right. So what was your big takeaway from this combo? Was Ooh. it that we should all be eating more chocolate chip cookies? Preferably with a little <laughs> bit of sea salt. That little bit of sea salt really makes them stand out, I think. I, th I thought you made, yeah. Personally, I like a, a touch of oatmeal in there as well. Oh, just yeah. to, It adds a little bit of chew. Just you know? not raisins. Yeah. Right. Just not raisins. <laughs> uh, you hating on raisins I over know. there. Okay. So I think my big takeaway is that so many of the things, so many of the problems and the different myths that he addresses in the book, it's not that they are something we should completely avoid, but it's just that we are relying on our job to meet those ends more than we should. Uh, so for instance, when it comes to the job you do, should you be passionate about it? Well, maybe we should be less focused focused on the passion side of things. Uh, and instead, first and foremost, like he said, it, we should be thinking about it like an economic contract. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to exchange my time and my talents for a paycheck. And if you like the job, that's gravy on top. Exactly. Yeah. And how maybe we shouldn't be looking to our jobs to find that interpersonal relationship and to the extent that we even think of our coworkers as family, but instead we should maybe maintain a degree of professionalism. And if we think about it from maybe more of that transactional 
framework, like within that framework, I think it could be healthier because honestly, I feel like it kind of goes counter to what a lot of folks are saying where they're just like, oh, no, no, no. You know, like the whole, if you're an employee here, we treat you like family, Mm -hmm. like that whole approach. But who benefits from that relationship? Typically the employer, not you. (laughs) And and, and it leaves the employee in an unhealthy position once you get fired or once you leave that job and you're trying to, and you're rudderless and you're you're trying to figure out what you're going to do next. But I thought we were family. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I just, I don't know. It's interesting to hear someone take an approach towards your work, towards your career that de-emphasizes the, like the interpersonal side of things. It's, mm-hmm. it's sort of like, it's a way that he is finding himself in the middle because he's not going to the far extreme and saying that like, oh yeah, we should all be completely disenchanted with our job. We should only be thinking about it as a contract. But the or that f- you should only do the bare minimum either, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So there, there's a way to find fulfilling work. And there's also a way to find work that's going to pay you well. Mm-hmm. But you don't necessarily have to sell your soul in order to achieve that on yeah. either end of the spectrum. Yep. No, yeah. I think it's a good way to put it. My what, big takeaway. about you though? Yeah. When he said all of our identities need investment, I thought that was great. Mm. And he basically talked about how they're similar to houseplants. And my thought was, man, a lot of our houseplants, at least in my house, are parched. <laughs> like we're not doing a good <laughs> enough job with them. And I think the same is true for a lot of our identities the different as areas in our life. Yeah. Like when, lives, yeah. when it comes to spouse, when it comes to parent. Uh, when it comes to community involvement. We talked about that Wall Street Journal. Uh, I can't get that out of my head. Just uh, that that poll about how people value money more than they value community, more than they value patriotism, mm, yeah. more than they value family these days. It, it, it speaks so much about where we're at as a culture. I think we value our careers way more than we value a lot of those things too because our careers are so tied to money and that is a shame. And so we need to start to think about how we can w- start watering, start pruning, start taking care of those other identity forming factors in our lives like hobbies, like interpersonal relationships. And I think that will in all likelihood mean putting a little bit less into work and career and I think we'll be happier for it. So I guess is uh, is this where I put in my two weeks notice, Matt? Sure. Yeah, okay. go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. But no, we, we there will be more do. how to money for folks. But we try not to overdo it. And yeah. and that is it's all about finding that balance. Part of the reason we love it because yeah. we're not working 60 hours a week doing it. Exactly. But Matt, let's go back to the beer that we had on this episode. This is a beer I picked up when I was out on the West Coast. It's yeah. Scrapalicious by Los Angeles Aleworks. What, what are your thoughts on this IPA? What is this whole, the whole Scrapalicious thing? Is that the name of this cat, I, I guess? I think so. Is it like a brewer, brewery cat? I think so. Makes me think about when we were in Kentucky and we went to Peerless Distillery. They had a distillery cat. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> that hung around there in the gift shop. But yeah, man, this was a fantastic, juicy IPA, as it's written here uh, on the label. Just like our conversation with Simone, it strikes the balance between being incredibly juicy and having the right amount of sweetness. But at the same time, it's got like that sharpness, yeah. the bitterness that you get from the hops. It, it's been a minute since I've said blue cheese, as I've described an IPA. But this one <laughs> kind of had some of those sharp blue cheese elements. Yeah. And when you're able to strike that perfect balance between the two, you end up with a, an amazing beer. I feel like when you describe an IPA, you don't typically want to describe it as funky, but occasionally there is an IPA. And hey, you, blue cheese is funky. Yeah, and you can call it yep. funky, and it's a good thing. Sometimes if it's funky, it means that it's old. It's a bad thing. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, oh, no, this is a shelf turd. This was on, there, uh, on the shelf for a, a year or two, and so it kind of tastes a little funky. But this is like, no, 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 the hops bring a level of, yeah, that that just some kind of unique notes from um, from the hop set that they put into mm-hmm. this IPA. And so I like it. It was juicy, a little funky, and uh, overall, good vibes from this one. Yeah, specifically, if you're really into the hops, this got, I've never even heard of these first two hops. Brew one, Laurel, and then 
Sabro, yeah. Sabro. I've seen those hops yeah. on labels before, but not those first two. So There's so many hop varieties now, it's ridiculous. Oh, no. You just got to go down there. One of these days, you want to go to a hop farm down in New Zealand? Uh, yeah. I, that sounds pretty cool. <laughs> Field trip. <laughs> uh, maybe in like five or ten years. Who knows? <laughs> but yeah, enough about the beer. Be sure to look out for Simone's book. Uh, it's set to be published here in a couple of weeks. I found it to be incredibly thought-provoking and Hopefully, I, I wonder if this is one of his goals, but just for you to be able to ask yourself a bunch of different questions mm-hmm. as you process and do the hard work of figuring out what it is that you're looking for. It's like the not just with mission your, statement. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Not just in your job, but honestly, just in life mm-hmm. overall. But uh, we'll make sure to have links up on the website at howtomoney.com. And buddy, that's going to be it for this episode. Until next time. Best friends out. Best friends out. Upswell Marketing would like to remind you that when customers choose your small business, they're really choosing you. So focus on super serving your existing customers and let Upswell handle the pipeline generation of new leads and customers. Upswell specializes in developing customized direct response campaigns and is now offering a no obligation free assessment of your current marketing strategies. Not to mention new customers also receive 15% off their first order when they mention that they heard about Upswell on this podcast. For more information, visit upswellmarketing.com. That's upswellmarketing.com. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.